Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, thanks to those of you who added five-star ratings for the program on iTunes. We could still use more. We could always use more. If you're a fan of the show, please do go to iTunes or wherever you download the podcast and give us a five-star rating. Nothing helps more people find the program. Now on to this week's show. My first guest is Emma Acker, the curator of Cult of the Machine, Precisionism, and American Art, the first broad survey of precisionism in nearly 20 years. The exhibition opens at the de Young Museum in San Francisco this weekend and remains on view through August 12th. Cult of the Machine includes over 100 works, including paintings, photographs, works on paper, and sculpture. It charts the emergence of the style in its roughly three-decade-long history. The exhibition's terrific catalog, which features scores of illustrations of supplemental artworks, including from institutions that wouldn't loan to the show, was published by the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco in association with Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $52. The exhibition will travel to the Dallas Museum of Art in September. On the second segment, Nathaniel Silver returns to the program to discuss his new exhibition, Fra Angelico, Heaven on Earth. It's at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum through May 20th. But first, Emma Acker, after the break. Now on view at the Getty Center, an exhibition about one of the world's most iconoclastic exhibition makers. Harold Zaman, Museum of Obsessions, explores the Swiss museum curator's life and career, from his groundbreaking involvement with the avant-garde movements of the 1960s and 70s, to his global contemporary exhibitions of the 1990s and 2000s, to his personal reading of early 20th century modernism. Learn more about this Getty Research Institute show and all March events at the Center at getty.edu 360. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Emma Acker, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to be with you. You open your catalog essay by arguing that precisionism has its roots in the 1913 Armory Show in New York, of course, and how Americans saw where the European avant-garde was and how they were motivated to find something as radical as the Europeans were doing, but that was also uniquely American. Um, I think that makes all the sense in the world. Um, but how do we account for how the Armory Show is 13, the first American paintings in your show are four paintings from 16 and they're all by one guy and we don't get to anyone else until 21. What what do we make of that gap and how long it took Americans maybe to figure it out? 
Yeah, so that's that's a, a great point. There's a lot going on in the teens um, between that sort of pivotal moment when artists encountered these European modernist works at the Armory Show, which are really kind of mind-blowing and caused them to reassess and reevaluate uh, what they're doing and to really sort of strive to forge this uniquely American art that's really independent of European traditions, but also incorporates those influences from abroad. And you think of the critic and gallerist Robert Cody as um, a, a very forceful advocate for this approach. Cody, who writes this important essay in The Soil, American Art, where he really encourages artists to turn to the American scene to really uh, focus on these industrial subjects drawn from the gear and girder world, um, as it's been termed. And so artists like uh, Morton Schomburg, who you who you correctly cited as sort of um, representing precisionism in one of its earliest forms in the exhibition with this extraordinary group of mechanical abstractions, four of which we'll have in the show, um, really sort of takes this on. And of course, we see the influence of European Dada lurking in the wings of Marcel Duchamp, Francis Macabia, their embrace of a machine aesthetic, their fascination with all things mechanical and industrial. So all of this is kind of fomenting. It's it's percolating. We have the salons that Walter and Louise Ehrensberg are hosting at their Manhattan apartment that the Dadaists are attending, that uh, Joseph Stella, Morton Schomburg, Charles Scheeler, uh, and Charles Demuth are present at. And so there's this tremendous period of, I would say, kind of um, synthesis happening during the teens. And Artists such as Scheeler and Demuth are really experimenting with uh, cubistic forms and focusing on these kind of American vernacular subjects. But it's true that precisionism really finds its fullest expression, I would say, between the two world wars. And, and you really see it fully kind of manifest um, in the 20s and 30s. So I think, you know, as with anything, it takes time for these new ideas and these new influences to really settle down and cohere into some something uh, truly new and and original and um, and fresh. So your show presents Schomburg as being light years ahead of his American peers. Why was he so far ahead? I, I guess one more thing about that. I mean, there's Manier Dawson and and um, and Albert Block, but they're sure. not known to American painters at the time. Right. Yes. I mean, Dawson really could be considered one of the first abstract artists in America, arguably the first. In fact, he's really sort of contemporary with his European counterparts. And he's not particularly well known. He's not a household name, although we do have a great painting by him in our collection. It, it it's I mean, I think, you know, people people come to things uh, in their own ways and at their own paces. And um, you know, Schomburg happened to be particularly precocious. He was particularly attracted to these kinds of subjects. And he was right there sort of at the um, nascent beginnings of, of a precisionist style, part of these part of these conversations at the Ehrensberg Salon. And, you know, he and Scheeler were very closely aligned in terms of their um, sensibilities and they were 
you know, renting the the Doylestown house, um, this 18th century Quaker stone house in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, that they began renting in 1910, where Sheeler really became turned on to the incredible sort of um, architectural uh, forms and, and possibilities of this older sort of vernacular American architecture. And this manifests in a very um, seminal series of photographs and works and other media that he made in 1917, roundabout there. So, you know, they were lockstep, you know, working together at the same time, sort of discovering these subjects together. But it's true that Schomburg really expresses them, I think, most fully, this, this kind of developed machine aesthetic you know, first, 1916. You mentioned Sheeler and, and the Doylestown house in, in Bucks County. You note in, in the catalog that while we all know what precisionism is, it was always more style than a group of dedicated adherents. Is there no Collier summer of precisionism as there was for Fauvism, or is the Doylestown house that? Yeah, there there's no, there's no uh, collective, there's no... Um, sort of one seminal moment. There's no manifesto. This is a term that was really applied to a group of artists who shared a certain sensibility and who depicted similar subjects, um, a term applied by critics and gallerists and later by art historians. The precisionist never self-identified as such. And so it is frankly very difficult to define precisionism. I, I think in some ways it's kind of a futile effort. My real goal was to use these works as a springboard for really contemplating the context in which they're made and its real resonance with our own moment today. Um, but I think, you know, it's very important to state from the outset that these borders, these boundaries are somewhat arbitrary, subjective, and fluid. And, um, you know, there are a lot of works that could just as easily, I think, be viewed as magic realist. I mean, unfortunately, don't have the artist looks at nature by Sheeler in the show, but it's a very surreal and strange and wonderful work that has these elements of, of surrealism and magic realism that you also find in the work of Peter Bloom, another artist who I've included in the exhibition, who's associated with precisionism, but whose work does encapsulate these other sort of qualities. So it's a it's a it's a tricky one and and I will be the first to to state that. Um this this really I think points more to something that was very much in the air. And it was in the air all over the West. I mean you look at uh, new objectivity, Neue Zaklichkeit in Germany, at purism in France, at Russian constructivism. I mean, these are times that, you know, with with the First World War are really marked by a sense of chaos and, and turmoil and devastation. And so I think artists just in general are turning towards a kind of formal order, a kind of um, sort of purity, a, a clarity of, of focus. And that manifests differently in different places. And in America, it manifests as this sort of style or this sensibility that um, we we term precisionist. I gather from reading the catalog, you want to wring the Art Institute of Chicago's neck. I had envisioned a whole section of the exhibition that would deal with this sort of um, tendency in precisionist art of veiled or coded portraiture and self-portraiture. So, um, you know, Demuth's poster portraits, Sheeler's The Artist Looks at Nature, and his self-portrait of 1923, which is a wonderful work and alone that we couldn't get. So I had to sort of retool the whole conception of the uh, last gallery of the exhibition because 
that didn't work out from a loan's perspective. Um, but it is a really fascinating and important aspect of precisionism, this idea that underlying these works that seem to be impersonal and mechanical, there are actually these kind of veiled uh, human references and associations. And, and you do find that in some of the works in the show. Um, Gerald Murphy's Watch is one particularly fabulous example. And of course, the interpretation of it as a kind of metaphor for his unhappiness and insecurity about his sexuality is absolutely that. It's an interpretation. We don't have any documented evidence for it, but I find it to be a very interesting and compelling argument. And in light of the sort of Dadaist influence, the idea of the mechanomorph, um, I, think it's, I think it's a very rich one to kind of explore in the exhibition. So about precisionism and its international relationships. You you noted that there were a couple of European movements or styles that were kind of trotting on, on the same paths. Did they know about the American painting that was going on at the time, or was it just this kind of post-World War I return-to-order type thing? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. And actually, at one point, um, I had been tasked with looking into the possible connections between uh, the American precisionists and the new objectivity artist Neue Zaklichkeit in Germany. And it was very difficult to find kind of tangible, concrete, documented interactions. Um, Schieler, of course, exhibited in the film and photo exhibition in Stuttgart photographs. Um, so he was aware of the kind of broader international context for um, the kind of sharp focus photography that he was doing. And of course, that has a real relationship to and bearing on precisionism. But I, I wouldn't say that these international movements were kind of consciously factored into the precisionists project. Um, I think it was more a question of concurrent, sort of simultaneous, shared sensibilities and aesthetic approaches and more the sense of something being in the air. Now, that being said, there are some specific cases where artists like Louis Lozowick, the Ukrainian-born American artist Louis Lozowick, who features pretty largely in the precisionist story. I mean, he was a major exhibitor in the Machine Age exposition. He wrote the kind of seminal sort of rallying cry for the modern artist, you know, who must confront the industrial age with, with the Americanization of art, which appeared in that catalog. And we're going to feature work by him, his machine ornament number two and New York, which were both shown in that sort of landmark exhibition. Um, he was very inspired by Russian constructivism and spent a great deal of time in Europe, uh, knew El Lizitsky. So there are definite links there, but I just wouldn't say that they were, you know, found across the board with all of the artists or the sort of key practitioners of precisionism, such as Schiller. So um, I think it's more a question of uh, concurrent or sort of simultaneous embracing of a kind of similar set of uh, subjects and styles. You mentioned Schiller and photography, and one of the really interesting things about uh, this show is that it includes uh, paintings and photographs, but also sculptures, particularly John Storrs, and lots of, this is a horrible term, but industrially machined objects, you know, designed, high design, industrially machined objects. Some are decorative, but most in the show are, are functional. 
Yeah. Is it possible to break out lines of influence? You know, what what media we're influencing, what's what what other media? Were painters or photographers influencing industrial designers? Were the painters inter, inf, influencing photographers? Were the photographers mostly influencing the painters? Is it possible to unravel that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a pretty tall order, but again, there are certain instances where things are a little bit more clear cut, I would say. You take someone like Sheeler, who of course had this lifelong fascination with working across media. And I'll say that one of my sort of first real sort of dives into precisionism, and I think an experience that really triggered my fascination with this subject in general, was working with Charlie Brock on the exhibition Charles Sheeler Across Media um, at the National Gallery of Art and actually traveled to the De Young um, in 2006, I believe. And the whole show was focused on Sheeler's work across media, the way in which he would translate imagery in photographs into, uh, you know, watercolors and drawings and paintings. Um, And this is a sort of key, I think, aspect of his work that in many ways, I think really has, has come to define the very sort of crisp, sharp focus of the precisionist style. There's almost a photorealist approach that seems extremely modern to a contemporary viewer today. I mean, he, he actually used an opaque projector to project imagery from his photographs onto a screen and then trace their outlines. So a very um, sort of strong reliance on a machine, the camera, is a key aspect of his practice that really underscores the kind of mechanistic associations that we have with this um, artistic style. So Sheeler was 100 uh, percent sort of invested in uh, his his practice as a photographer and um use that as a a key sort of influence and tool for his practice as a painter, which is really interesting. In other cases, I mean, we've included work of modernist photographers like Margaret Bork White, uh, Paul Strand, and Paul Outerbridge, Berenice Abbott, to really, I think, show the shared sensibilities um, among these photographers and precisionist painters and the ways in which the kind of sharp focus and radical angles of vision and cropping that you find in modernist photography really influenced and is sort of evident in the precisionist aesthetic. So I I think it's fair to say that, you know, photography in many ways did influence the precisionist vision. Um, And there's actually a wonderful exhibition uh, mounted in 1982 at SF MoMA curated by Karen uh, Sujimoto that dealt with this very topic. So I haven't made it the sort of core focus of my show, but it's really sort of woven throughout. I have photographs sort of interspersed throughout the galleries. Other, you know, precisionist painters like Ralston Crawford also were fantastic photographers. Um, but this is sort of a lesser known aspect of, of his um, of his career. I didn't really address your question about the industrial. I, I would say that... It's really the aesthetic of industry and of machines that has a tremendous impact on the precisionist style. And that, of course, this industrial aesthetic, you know, streamlining is a key aspect of consumer design, of product design during the 1930s. So that's going to be a whole section of the exhibition called Machines as Art, which really just 
sort of zooms in on these consumer objects as works of art. And of course, they were celebrated as such in MoMA's 1934 exhibition, Machine Art, which really radically displayed only industrially manufactured objects. So it was this kind of widespread fascination with and celebration of the mass-produced kind of commercially available industrial object, which is really interesting and something that the precisionists are, of course, completely uh, picking up on. So what's interesting to me about that is most of those design objects, I mean, the objects are in the show, not the design, come from the mid-30s. The MoMA show was 34, but there are lots of precisionist paintings in the show from the 20s. Yes. Um, so the show seems to suggest that um, that the painters were were there first. Well, you know, what's interesting, so the Machine Age Exposition is in 1927, and there was an earlier pre yeah, and, and, and this is such a and landmark. That's, and that's when Albert Barr helps, uh, that's when Barr uh, is one of the first two people to use the word precisionism. Yes, absolutely. 1927 is when we think the first appearance of the term precisionist is in a lecture given by Alfred H. Barr Jr. Uh, on tendencies in American painting and also in a New York Times review by the critic Louis Kalanine. Barr also uses the term in a 1929 lecture, um, but it's probably sort of been percolating and evolved prior to that with the use of words like precise and precision in descriptions of these artists' works uh, in the 20s. 20s, in the early 20s. Um, but it's a kind of vague origin story, and I think that points to how tricky it is to actually define precisionism. But the Machine Age Exposition in New York City is this really fascinating and kind of uh, landmark show where fine art objects are displayed alongside machines and machine parts. So you've got paintings by Charles Demuth and by Louis Lozowick alongside airplane engines and crankshafts and propellers and meat slicers. So this really, you know, it's seven years before the machine art show, and we're already seeing this kind of widespread zeal for industry, um, this this almost idolization of industry. And it's, it's a very kind of utopic vision the organizer of the show, Jane Heap, who's the publisher of the of the Little Review, said that she viewed the invention of machines as a necessary and mysterious part of our evolution. That's paraphrasing, but she and she had even before sort of mounting the exhibition, um, she'd met uh, the purists aux enfants and uh, Leger in France, and we'll need to check on that. I, I believe she met both of them, but don't quote me on that. But at any rate, she she really sort of associated machines and industry with a kind of religion and with real beauty. And she really felt it was her mission to educate the public about their power and importance. So there's this real kind of, um, it's referred to as the 20th century religion of business. You know, Calvin Coolidge in 1916 says, the man who builds a factory builds a temple, the man who works there worships there. So there's this real sort of positive and affirmative and even kind of zealous attitude towards industry in the 20s. I think this shifts slightly when you get to the 30s. You know, it's interesting that in machine art, uh, the show that, you know, ostensibly really celebrates the industrial and these objects are 
viewed as the equals of fine art. They're showcased in these magnificent galleries designed by Philip Johnson. But Barr writes a preface to the catalog, and he talks about, and again, this is paraphrasing, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he talks about the kind of treacherous uh, wilderness of machines and how they kind of threaten humanity and that our only sort of recourse is to bind them aesthetically as well as economically. Um, not only must we bind Frankenstein, but we must make him beautiful. I just think that's such a strange and wonderful quote. And I think it points to a certain reservation, a certain sort of more cautionary note about these objects and about the the sort of power and prevalence of, of industry and machines. And of course, you know, the, the country is now in the depression, so it's a different cultural moment. One of the things that I, I, I noticed in the book is, which I suppose I knew before, was that precisionism is very, 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 very New York and Northeastern thing. You know, the two big cities of, of precisionism are, 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 are New York and Pittsburgh for, for different reasons. Um, why is it such a New York thing? Why, why doesn't it kind of make its way across? With, with one exception we'll get to in a moment. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, other than the fact that New York City had long been the kind of capital of the art world and still is in, in America um, in, in many ways. And so artists are drawn there for a variety of reasons, including the ecosystem and the infrastructure for, for selling and showing their work. I think maybe more important in this case is the absolute attraction and fascination that New York City's architecture and landscape held for these artists. I mean, precisionism is it's inextricably linked with the urban scene as well as the industrial scene in America. And so, you know, no city in the country had the level of sort of, well, that's not true because Chicago was really a booming architecture town. Let me, yeah, let me take see, this, see, thing this back. Is, but, yeah. See, that's why I asked because yeah. you have San Francisco becoming vertical after the 1906 earthquake and just booming upward as the city tries to recover. You have Chicago, you have St. Louis, you have Buffalo, and yet the thing seems pretty confined to, to New York with occasional um, forays to the steel mills in Pittsburgh. Yeah, well, and also Buffalo. I mean, Crawford, you know, Buffalo grain elevators. I, I think the, and, and you look at Lazowick's uh, American city pictures, which are focused on sort of representing the functional efficiencies of cities across the country. And that was inspired by a 1919 cross-country trip that he took. So he really was invested in depicting um, Seattle as well as New York and um, the, the kind of key attributes that we would associate with each of these different cities. Um, but it's true that the majority of precisionist city scenes are focused on New York City. And that's because I think it just offered these sort of unparalleled sort of sources of inspiration in these these new magnificent you know sort of ever ascending in height buildings that were sort of constantly being erected i think it was just the mecca for these artists of this sort of new emphatically vertical and modern landscape and and architecture and you find this in the decorative arts as well i mean this is where paul frankel sets up shop to sell his skyscraper line of furniture this is where bork white is is drawn you know she's there there artists are getting commissions she's getting commissioned to document the construction of the chrysler building um so you know it's it's the financial and cultural 
center, the heart of America at this time. And I think that's really reflected in the architecture, the ever-changing sort of city skyline. And that's a real draw for these artists. I mentioned that there was kind of one exception to the New York-Pittsburgh narrative and access, and that's uh, some photographers out in California. Yes. Um, who, who were they, and did they know about the work being made on the other side of the country, or did they come to the style on their own? Yeah, that's a great question. Featured in, in our exhibition are the photographers uh, Imogen Cunningham, uh, Alma Lavinson and Willard Van Dyke, and they were all associated with the F64 group, which had its inaugural exhibition at the MHD Young Memorial uh, Museum, in fact. And yes, they were based here on the West Coast, and they were similarly really experimenting with um, this this sort of sharp focus photography with, uh, you know, uh, an emphasis on industrial subjects. One of the masterpieces of the exhibition in terms of photography is Cunningham's Fajil Ventilators, which depicts this sort of stack of ventilators at a, uh, an industrial site in Oakland. And it's an absolutely marvelous kind of a precisionist image, this complete abstraction from her industrial subject matter, um, wonderful geometries just silhouetted against the sky. So there are a couple of subjects that recur throughout the show, and I, um, and I wonder if, if they point to anything in particular, whether it's just kind of they point to the age or whether it's something more specific. And the subjects that, that pop up again and again are bridges and power plants and power generation. Yes. Um, is, is that just about the age or is there something more there? Ah, you mean something kind of symbolic or metaphorical? I, I mean, I think absolutely they're kind of metaphors for the nation's technological prowess. It's sort of uh, the harnessing of natural forces to, you know, generate power. And obviously, immediately think of Sheeler's power series, and we'll have four of those paintings in the exhibition out of the six that were commissioned by Fortune magazine uh, in 1938. And, you know, he focuses on what the magazine termed the nation's instruments of power. And I think artists of the period were really drawn to the kind of sense of sublimity that these these structures and these machines represented, this sort of um, what to them must have been quite a mind-boggling sense that humans could take command of the landscape of of natural resources and and you know sort of you know what better way to convey this than these towering kind of magnificent uh, and and sometimes kind of menacing or um, overwhelmingly scaled structures that rise up. I mean, there's a wonderful essay in the book by Adrian Dobb that focuses on Sheeler's conversation, Sky and Earth. And it talks about the painting as a landscape painting, but in which all of nature is basically occluded by the man-made, by these massive structures. And so I think there's something in that, this sort of tension between uh, man and machine, between nature and technology. And it's a kind of way of contending with and grappling with this new mechanistic age and, you know, the cities that are these concrete jungles. I mean, it's 
it's there's a celebration and there's a kind of um, awe and and wonder that I think these artists are expressing. But I think in some of the works, there's some fear, perhaps, or or at least maybe some ambivalence. And that's one of the interesting things that we're trying to tease out in the exhibition is what are these works saying? What is the perspective of the precisionist? And it's not a uniform one. It's not a, a one size fits all. And, you know, each of the artists had a very different uh, relationship to their subjects, uh, you know, stated or, or otherwise. And I think, I think they can be somewhat hard to read. And I think that that's actually something that contributes to their richness. Well, well speaking of that, one of the interesting things about precisionism is a style is that it works both for these big industrial buildings and urban cityscapes, but the same artists, Sheeler, O'Keefe, others, take it into rural America and make paintings of yeah. barns or of a, 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 a kitchen in, in colonial Williamsburg. What about the style made it so malleable? Yeah, and that's such a an interesting and surprising aspect of precisionist art that you see by these very same artists who are so focused on urban and industrial America, skyscrapers and factories and smokestacks and bridges, you see them using these same kind of architectonic compositions, these streamlined geometries to depict barns and shaker interiors. Um, a whole sort of subset of precisionist art focuses on these rural subjects, these sort of, um, you know, vernacular uh, architectural forms, these traditional handicrafts, these 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 rural landscapes. And um, it's it's really interesting. I think one that these artists, among them, you know, Charles Sheeler, Georgia O'Keeffe, Ralston Crawford, Peter Bloom, George Alt, were attracted to the very streamlined geometries of rural structures, and they tied them very consciously in some cases to the functionalism of a machine age aesthetic. So Sheeler said of his collection of shaker objects, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I don't like these things because they're old, but in spite of it, um, he really wanted to emphasize the aesthetic continuities between past and present. And this is something that was kind of expressed more widely in American culture at the time. This is the height of the American colonial revival movement. You have the sort of financing and construction of living history museums like Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. It was financed by the Rockefellers. You have Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. And these projects really were less concerned with historical accuracy and more with kind of celebrating and romanticizing the nation's pre-industrial past and with linking it to the present. And I argue that this reflects a certain nostalgia for a, a, what was perceived to be a simpler kind of uh, bygone era and maybe some anxieties about the newness and strangeness of the present moment of the machine age, a way for Americans to kind of connect aspects of their modern experience with this more familiar narrative about the nation's history and identity, tracing it back to the colonial period. Of course, this is a very sort of Western-centric, Eurocentric kind of um, uh, perspective and leaves out a lot of other important aspects of America's cultural identity. But it was a real thrust and a trend during this period. And I think it's reflected in a sense in the precisionist focus on these kinds of 
you know, very sort of characteristically American subjects, this kind of Americana, very much sort of fitting in with Georgia O'Keeffe's mantra to, to, to depict the great American thing. You know, between between uh, these paintings and these photographs and these industrially designed objects or these objects that were designed and industrially made, it could be a really awkward place for a sculptor to find room, to find a place to do something. And yet John Storrs is a really big presence in the show and, and an early one. Um, the earliest Storrs in the show is 1922. How did he do that? Um, I mean, you know, he's he's clearly in intellectual allegiance with all the artists we've been talking about. He is not Paul Manship here. Yeah, no, Storrs is a really interesting case study. I mean, he has long been fascinated with this interrelationship between sculpture and architecture and sort of right from the outset, architecture looms large in his kind of um, artistic approach and sensibility. And so you have an incredible object like Auto Tower Industrial Form, um, essentially, this is a piece that evokes the sort of vertical thrust of a skyscraper with these architectonic forms when you look at it in its vertical orientation. But when you shift it to a horizontal orientation, you see an automobile. And when you look at it in profile, you see these totemic forms. So he's merging all of these different artistic influences, Art Deco, uh, skyscraper architecture, Native American pre-Columbian art, uh, European modernist visual languages. It's this wonderful synthesis. And I think in, in a lot of ways, this becomes a great sort of example in sculpture of what the precisionists are doing in painting and in other media, um, this synthesis of so many different stylistic and cultural influences into something that in the whole ends up being very uniquely American about this sort of brave new world of skyscrapers and cars. But look, there's there's the presence of an anthropomorphic figure. It's, it's this sort of wonderful amalgam of ideas and visual forms. The show begins with uh, two Europeans, Duchamp and Bacabia. Um, and it includes one American who was really active in Europe, and, and that's Gerald Murphy. What does he make, and does what he makes influence Europeans and kind of complete a geographical circle? Yeah, Murphy is a really interesting personality and presence in the exhibition. We're including his watch, which is this monumental six and a half foot square painting that he made in 1925 in the very first gallery of the exhibition. It's going to be the first thing you see essentially when you walk into the exhibition. And um, I think it'll have a tremendous visual impact. Essentially, he's rendered in kind of hyper-realist detail the workings of two timepieces that had real meaning for him. So at the center, you see those of a railroad watch that was designed by Mark Cross Company. This is a luxury goods business that was owned by his dad. And then at the upper right, those of a gold pocket watch that was given to him by his wife, Sarah, as an engagement present. And so, of course, uh, you know, the story of the Murphys abroad, Gerald and Sarah Murphy living this very glamorous expatriate lifestyle in Paris and along the French Riviera. They're surrounded by writers and artists of the of the lost generation, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway. This is very well known. Um, he's almost as 
well known as a thrower of fabulous parties um, as, as, as an artist. Um, but what's really interesting about Watch is it actually may contain these kind of coded allusions to Murphy's difficult personal life. Um, despite the sort of outward trappings of success, he was a very kind of tortured and conflicted figure. He was a closeted homosexual. He kind of repressed his sexual orientation and tried to live up to these societal expectations for quote-unquote masculine success through his marriage and the births of his three children. But he always really struggled with what he very heartbreakingly termed his one defect. And there's this incredible letter that he wrote in 1931, I believe, where he seems to almost compare his emotional core to that of a flawed mechanism. He describes it as a faulty instrument de précision. So it's this sense that he's sort of using the uh, metaphors and sort of um, analogies of machines to talk about his his own struggles with his sexuality. And what's really interesting about Watch is that it's at its core, it's got a broken mainspring. And, um, you know, it's, I think you'll have the image up on the screen, but basically there's a gray grooved wheel just left of center that's supposed to connect with the gold center wheel just to the right, but there's this curving gray sheath that separates them. And so it's fundamentally inoperable. And scholars have suggested that this is a kind of metaphor, a, a coded allusion to his uh, repressed sexuality and his insecurity about it. And we don't have any written documentation from Murphy to support that, but I do find it to be a very compelling and persuasive argument, given how otherwise sort of um, incredibly detailed and accurate the rest of the renderings of these various gears and mechanisms are in the painting. And also in light of this idea of the mechanomorph that the Dadaists, that Marcel Duchamp and Francis Picabia introduced, um, an idea that was certainly in the air, that you could create an image that merged human and machine characteristics, or maybe more specifically, that used mechanical imagery to represent aspects of the human condition. So you think of of Picabia's, you know, incredible and 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 famous um, portraits of, of various figures like Alfred Stieglitz using machine parts. He's, you know, depicted Stieglitz as a deflated bellows camera in one um, particularly wonderful example. Um, and in our show, we're going to feature a work by Duchamp called Nine Malik Molds that he made. Actually, the work we're featuring is a 1963 copy after a study that he made for the large glass, the bride-stripped bear by her bachelor's even. And in it, he he uses mechanical imagery to represent the bachelor's and by extension in the whole composition, aspects of human sexuality. Um, and so this is an idea that you absolutely find influencing work by precisionists such as uh, Charles Sheeler. There's a wonderful self-portrait from 1923, which we don't feature in the exhibition. We unfortunately couldn't get the loan, but it is this marvelous and very unusual self-portrait because you basically don't see Sheeler himself. You see a kind of ghostly reflection in the window of his headless torso, but you really are focused on this telephone that seems to kind of be a technological surrogate for the artist. It seems to almost speak to the viewer on the artist's behalf. Um, and then Morton Schomburg's God, this amazing photograph from 1917 um, that the, we are featuring in 
the show, which is uh, taken of a sculpture by the same name that he probably created in collaboration with the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. It may have been the Baroness um, working on her own and Schomburg simply documenting it. But nonetheless, they've sort of elevated these everyday industrial materials, um, a plumbing fixture and a wooden miter box to the level of a deity with this title. So this anthropomorphization of machines that I think is, is a very sort of interesting lens through which to look at the Murphy. Um, so Murphy is, you know, very much, I mean, I wouldn't say he was certainly not a member of the Ehrensburg circle. He wasn't in close contact with, uh, these other artists, but he seems to be sort of on his own incorporating some of these same kinds of ideas and uh, certainly stylistic emphases in really very interesting ways. I would read that Schomburg um, in, I mean, I don't disagree with any of that, but I would, I would, I think add to the Schomburg that Schomburg is naming an industrially rooted sculpture God um, is kind of an Emersonian reference to how Emerson and the transcendentalists, mostly Unitarians, found that nature and landscape could hold God. And here's Schomburg saying, yeah, that's great. now in 20th century America, um, industry and industrial processes are where we find that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's that notion of the 20th century religion of business that I mentioned earlier. And Sheeler says, you know, um, it may be true that our factories are a substitute for religious expression. So all of these artists are kind of contending with this, this particular cultural moment um, where machines and industry have certainly replaced, uh, well, essentially, you know, uh, secular commercial capitalism has replaced the church as the sort of new reigning social force. And you see that, you know, in the commissions that Sheeler takes no longer is, you know, the church, the major patron as it was, um, you know, for, for centuries previously. Now, there's a commission from Ford Motor Company, and it yields some of Sheeler's greatest works of art. So it's American landscape, classic landscape, 30 and 31. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we I don't know if we talked about Demas in Sense of a New Church, but that, you know, completely encapsulates the zeitgeist as well. And I think in a kind of slightly dark and ironic way that certainly can be, I think, traced to the influence of the Dadaists as well. Yeah, so essentially Demeth is equating or conflating this sort of billowing plumes of smoke that are coming out of a steel plant, and this is the Lucan steel plant in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, with the burning of incense during religious worship, and you can see a little chalice in the right foreground to kind of underscore that connection. We talked earlier about um, the European references. You know, that's a Demeth reference to, to to Europe because, of course, the church was never important in American art, um, except for as 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 kind of providing underpinning what we would now call theory um, through Emerson in the 1830s that that, that that brought American art to the landscape because landscape is to American art what the church is to European art. And of course, Demeth is is famously a kind of transatlantic splitting time between Paris and New York and really sort of trying to resolve his complicated and often quite ambivalent feelings about America. But ultimately, you know, what does he say? What what work I do will be done here, terrible as it is to work in this, our land of the free. So he's he's very sort of steeped in and aware of European traditions, but is also consciously trying to position himself as an American artist. Yeah, we talked at the beginning of the show about the nationalism inherent in precisionism, and I think we're closing by noting that how just as America in the 1920s was figuring out or learning how to lead in the world after World War One, that 
America's artists were also trying to figure out their own positions vis-a-vis European art past and present. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a real process of negotiation. Emma Acker, thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you, Tyler. Now through April 15th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents three spectacular exhibitions from a stylistically diverse group of artists. All of Everything, Todd Oldham Fashion, presents dozens of intricately embellished garments from the multi-talented designer's fashion stint in the 1990s. William Kentridge's The Refusal of Time explores thought-provoking ideas about time through an immersive mix of sounds, movement, and stunning imagery. And from Austrian photomontage artist Anita Vitek comes her first-ever U.S. installation, Clip, on view in the Wexner Center lobby. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Nathaniel Silver. He's returning to the program to discuss his new exhibition, Fra Angelico, Heaven on Earth. It's at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston through May 20th. The exhibition joins Angelico's Assumption and Dormition of the Virgin, acquired by Gardner in 1899, and the first Angelico acquired by an American, with its three companions from the Museo di San Marco in Florence. Conceived by Angelico as a set of reliquaries for the Florentine Church of Santa Maria Novella, they tell the story of the Virgin Mary's life. The outstanding catalog, complete with one of the best and most beautiful book covers you'll ever see, was published by The Gardener and Paul Holberton Publishing. It's available from Amazon for $41. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Nat Silver, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's great to be with you. Your show and the book looks at the first Fra Angelico painting brought to the United States, a, a painting, of course, now in the Gardener Collection. The painting was made between 1424 and 1434 for the Church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence. And as you might expect from the name of the church, it is a Marian painting. So before we get into the specifics of your show, what did Angelico make for the church and why? Well, Fra Angelico made some of his most fantastic works for the Church of Santa Maria Novella. It was the Dominican headquarters in Florence and he himself was a Dominican friar. So receiving commissions from 
patrons and from the, the order running this church was really a, a testament to his abilities, even at an early stage in his career. The painting in the Gardner Museum depicts the remission and assumption of the Virgin Mary, and it's part of a set of four paintings, four reliquaries that he was asked to make for the sacristy, the most holy location within the church of Santa Maria Novella between 1424 and 1434. Now these reliquaries, literally containers for holy relics, were intended to rehouse the most important relics in the church of Santa Maria Novella. So it was not just a commission for an important church. It was one of the most important commissions for one of the biggest and most important churches in Florence. And I should also add that by the time he finishes this commission in 1434, Pope Eugenius the, the Pope Eugenius IV is arriving in the city to take up residence within the church itself and about to commandeer the sacristy as his own private chapel. So these these are not intended originally as works for the Pope, but they become almost immediately after they're completed works that were certainly appreciated by him. So we're going to get to the reliquaries in a moment. But you mentioned that they ended up being installed, or they were they were made for what ended up becoming, I should say, the papal chapel at the church. First, why was there a papal chapel in the church? And what does that there was a papal chapel in Florence mean for the position of this church and this site in the Catholic universe of the time? That's a great question. It's a little bit complicated. Santa Maria Novella was one of the two biggest churches in Florence at the dawn of the 15th century. You have to remember that this is the time of the reconstruction of the cathedral, which is not yet complete. So the time when Fra Angelico is working at Santa Maria Novella, it still is one of one of the city's two biggest churches. It's the headquarters of the Dominicans, the, the religious order of men who follow the rule of St. Dominic. And its its only competitor in the city in terms of size is the Franciscan Church of Santa Croce. So they're sort of competitors. Now, the Dominicans at Santa Maria Novella had kind of won up on the competition. They were so big and so important that when the city, when the, the governors of the city had VIP guests who were coming into town, they housed them in their official residence at Santa Maria Novella. So the city itself, the city government, uses the convent of the Church of Santa Maria Novella as its kind of VIP residence. The, the first pope to stay there is Martin V, and this is in 1419. And in th this is a visit to the city that's been long planned. Martin arrives with in the company of his cardinals and his entire retinue, and you read Chronicles of Florence at the time, written by people who witnessed the processions into the city, and they're totally flabbergasted by the scale, the scope, the wealth that the Pope and his entourage bring into the city. The city had worked with the Dominicans at Santa Maria Novella to refurbish the convent in a manner befitting a Pope, so it had to be fancy. <laughs> They commissioned major artists at the time, so Ghiberti works on the staircase. Donatello provides a sculpture for the, the, the base of a new ceremonial staircase within the convent. And it's ready and prepared when Martin, the, Martin arrives with his entourage there. And he stays for, for about a year, a little over a year. 
Now, it's not the only time that Santa Maria Novella is used to house a pope. So roughly 14 years later, Eugenius IV finds himself in Rome under threat. There's a popular rebellion going on. He disguises himself as a monk and hires a boatman to take him up the river Tiber, eventually traveling by boat and by land to take refuge in the city of Florence, uh, allies of, of the papacy. And he ends up staying in Santa Maria Novella, in the apartment that had been built for his predecessor, Martin. But this time, it's not by choice. It's by accident. And luckily, everything is already there. It's already prepared. The Florentines have a wonderful space for him. And this time, he doesn't stay for a year and a half. He stays for almost 10 years. So the Florence for those 10 years between 1434 and 1443 becomes the kind of home away from home for the papacy. Santa Maria Novella is effectively transformed into a mini Vatican and the sacristy is commandeered by the Pope for his personal chapel. It allows him to, he and his cardinals, to celebrate mass every day in in a, a private but suitably honorable space and surrounded by some of the most important works of art in the church, including Fra Angelico's reliquaries. So is the Pope receiving visitors in in Florence during this time, and does that help the spread of the ideas, compositions, etc., in Angelico's painting? The Pope is absolutely receiving visitors at this time in the sacristy, and there are eyewitness accounts of some of the more famous visitors that who, who come to visit him. He's also going out into the city, so he arrives in 1434, and two years later in 1436, the Florentines complete construction on the cathedral. Brunelleschi's dome is up, and they ask the Pope to reconsecrate it. And so he's also going out into the city. To what extent are artists looking at the reliquaries by Fra Angelico for new compositional innovations? It's a great question, and I'm not exactly certain of the answer. We do know, however, that Fra Angelico's monumental works are having a major impact in the city. And you could you could say that a number of the compositional innovations in his monumental works are reprised in the reliquaries. So you're getting a version kind of in miniature of some of the major innovations, like, for example, his Annunciation. His Annunciation altarpiece for the Church of San Domenico in Fiesole, the church where he himself is a friar, mm-hmm. is about is poised to become the new popular image of the Annunciation for the city. And in the reliquary, you get some of the, the key features of that Annunciation composition. We've used the word reliquaries a couple times. Each of the four painted reliquaries from Santa Maria Novella housed relics, which I guess aren't still there? That's right. So first, in the context of 15th century Italy, what are relics? And then secondly, how would they have existed within or on Angelico's works? So in the context of 15th century Italy, relics are the remains of sacred individuals and holy places. So we might talk about bits of skin, fragments of bone, strands of hair, clothing that belonged to saints. And that could also extend to even grains of soil from the Holy Land. These materials were all believed to have a a resonance, a power 
beyond that transcended their material value. But of course, they were also tiny, relatively invisible. So the work of the reliquary was to enshrine these fragments and to celebrate and glorify them. Uh, and Fra Angelico does that with his paintings. You know, his cycle of Marian paintings celebrates the relics of saints that were housed within these reliquaries with images of the most important woman in the city of Florence, uh, the protector of Florence, the Virgin Mary. Do we know what what the exact relics were? We don't, actually. So I've taken a stab at this in the catalog and tried to figure out which relics were in each reliquary. Three of the four reliquaries still have predellas, so still have pedestal bases that are painted with different images. I suspect that the relics within those three reliquaries probably corresponded to the images that you see on their bases. So for example, uh, the reliquary of the Annunciation and the Adoration of the Magi shows 10 female saints depicted on its base. And my suspicion is that the relics of those 10 female saints were probably contained within that reliquary. It, it, you know, it's a little bit of informed speculation, so I can't prove it. But looking at inventories of the sacristy that date from after Fra Angelico painted his reliquaries, because we don't have earlier inventories, it's clear that relics of those saints do exist within the sacristy. They're just not located, like whether they're in one reliquary or another. So it's clear that those saints were there, and it would make sense that they were housed in the reliquary that had images of them on it. We can also I, I'll say one more thing, which is that on the reliquary, the Madonna della Stella, the, the standing image of the Virgin holding Christ in her arms, it's the one reliquary that still contains the chambers in which the relics were housed. So we think that each of the reliquaries of this type would have had circular, probably circular chambers in which these fragments, the, these strands of hair or bits of bone were deposited. And in the Madonna della Stella, you can still see 16 of them surrounding her. They're literally holes punched through the wood panel covered by small screens. It's possible they would have originally been covered by glass so that you could, you could actually see the, the relics within. You know, one of the things that really surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, I'm not, I don't know a lot about 15th century Florentine art, but one of the things in your essay that really surprised me is that you write that despite these paintings functioning as reliquaries, they appear to have been valued by the Dominicans of the church, principally because they were Angelicos. Was that unusual for its time and place? It is a little unusual. So these four reliquaries painted wooden panels with relics deposited within small chambers are of a, a type that's not uncommon in the 15th century, but it's a type that, that's found far more in Siena than it is in Florence. You don't really see them in Florence very often, but you see many, many of them in Siena, which makes these ones stand out a little bit for the fact that they were made for a Florentine church. Now, the other thing that's really unusual about them is that a, a well-known named painter made them. Many of the Sienese examples are by painters for whom we, we don't have, uh, are, are by artists whose names we don't know. Occasionally they're by a well-known painter, but that's more the exception than the norm. In this case, the church hired the order's official painter, essentially, to make reliquaries for the sacristy. 
And so that's a little bit unusual. What emerges as even more unusual is that in the earliest records, so by the end of the 15th century, maybe like 75 years after these things were made, they're not being referred to by their relics. It's one of the reasons we don't know which relics for certain were in each one. Instead, they're being referred to as those Fra Angelico reliquaries, which is really strange. The importance of the relic traditionally transcended the name of the painter who provided the reliquary or the name of the sculptor who provided the reliquary. I mean, it's, it's unusual enough in the early 15th century to name names of artists just as a rule, whether you're talking about reliquaries or not. But then the fact that somehow the importance of the painter in this case outweighed the importance of the relics of the saints relics, you know, relics that were venerated, not just by the Dominicans, but by the entire city of Florence, by the citizens who, who, who worshiped in this church is pretty remarkable. And that's one of the reasons we don't know for certain what the saints, who, who, which saints were contained within. You have a couple other works of Angelico's in your show. One of them is his paradise from 1431, 35, as well as a couple of the predella from the work. All of the, the, the three paintings all live in Florence, but in different places in Florence. Is there anything you've seen or learned by bringing them together? There is, actually. Whenever you bring works of art together that I think were intended to be seen together, features always start to emerge, even just small visual correspondences. So, for example, when we hung the predella scene with the marriage of the Virgin on it next to Paradise, I realized that the horns that the trumpeters are using in the predella scene to announce the fact that the Virgin is going to be married correspond in form, shape, and material to the, the trumpets at the top of the Paradise altarpiece. So there was a little bit of play in terms of the upper panel and the, and the lower panels, the subsidiary panels, which, which makes sense. The other thing which I've noticed over, over the last couple of weeks of having them together in the gallery is the degree to which Fra Angelico extends the exquisite detail and high quality of facture from the main panel of the altarpiece into each of the subsidiary predella scenes. So for example, the, it's, it's long been recognized that a number of the saints in the main altarpiece are inscribed with their names in gold. Calling them out is particularly important in, in this context. Uh, one, for example, was the titular of the church that the altarpiece came from, Sant'Egidio. So the altarpiece is made for the church of Sant'Egidio. In the predella, in this tiny, tiny little panel, Fra Angelico compresses the same extraordinary level of precision and detail. So, for example, in the death of the Virgin, the dormition of the Virgin scene, each of the apostles has his name inscribed in his halo. And they're all there. And they're all there. <laughs> well, they're, In 50 centimeters, yeah. In 50 centimeters. I mean, so the, the inscriptions are smaller than, uh, you know, a penny. These are halos that are smaller than a penny. And the inscriptions are just in the very outer edge of those halos. Some of the, some of the saints, it doesn't completely make sense that they're there. For example, St. Thomas Aquinas was thought to be away preaching in India at the time of the Virgin Mary's death, excuse me, not St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas the Apostle, and then suddenly arrives. So he's depicted here, death to her left. But it, it's not as unusual as I was trying to make it out to be, but he, he is here. What is a little unusual is that 
all of the apostles are here. In different accounts, different numbers of them arrive, and then occasionally you get additional figures. So, for example, in the Gardner paintings version of the Dormition, there are 15 figures. There aren't 15 apostles. And so the, these are it represents the addition of, of other individuals that are named in medieval sources who may or may not have been there. But just to come back to your initial question, sorry, I was getting a little bit sidetracked, that that degree of detail extends to the other Perdella panel as well, the marriage of the Virgin. So since it's arrived, I've noticed, for example, that the priest himself has an inscription in his hat. Never noticed that before. No one's ever commented on that before. As far as I can tell, no one's ever seen it before. It says it, that he is a priest. He says the word sacerdotis, so priest in Latin. Finally, I understand that a number of the paintings in this show were conserved before traveling to Boston, uh, the National Gallery's entombment, for example. The answer to this may be no, but um, did we learn anything in in those conservation treatments? Anything new? Well, there were a number of different conservation treatments. So all three of the reliquaries owned by the Museo di San Marco were cleaned in preparation for their loan to the gardener. And that was really a wonderful opportunity because we had a chance to do x-ray analysis and infrared analysis. So one of the things that we learned, for example, about the coronation of the Virgin reliquary was that it, it has a remarkably detailed underdrawing, very much consistent with the kind that we found in our own painting of the Dormition and Assumption of the Virgin, the one owned by the Gardner Museum, and one that hasn't previously been examined. One thing we were hoping to find more of in the conservation treatments in the x-rays was kind of what the original construction of these objects were in terms of the, the, the reliquaries, because their frames were definitely reworked in the 19th century. And that we weren't so successful with. It's very difficult to tell what's happened to them. The opportunity to have the painting in Washington of Christ's entombment cleaned was a really fantastic one. That painting has been off view since the 1960s. So really, with the exception of a couple of scholars, very, very few people have seen it. And the opportunity to clean it and then show it in the exhibition, I think, is a really an opportunity to kind of reassess what people think it is. There's some debate about its attribution and whether or not it was, in fact, an altarpiece that was made for the Medici that, we, that it's sometimes connected to in the documents. That we made a small discovery to when we did infrared analysis of that painting. We discovered that one of the figures surrounding Christ, the man in red, all the way at the right-hand side of the painting, had originally been painted with a, a particular hairstyle. And then at some point before the painting was complete, the hair was covered with a hat. So that suggests a, a, a last-minute change, perhaps even at the request of the donor himself. And it makes us think that this figure might, in fact, be a portrait of the donor. Nat Silver, thanks so much for speaking with me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.